This morning, we were uh, reminded by our friend Rick in Sunday school this morning that um, gathering together as believers on Sunday is uh, not just a privilege, but it's the highlight of our week. And uh, I, I wholeheartedly agree with what he was saying. Um, and it's not just because we're friends. It's not just because um, I like you or you like me. Probably some of you don't like me even that much. It's because we can gather together around the Word of God. This morning, I am very grateful we are able to gather here together around God's Word. Often here, you'll hear us talk about the persecuted church, the global church that is suffering under persecution. Uh, I'm not referring to people getting their feelings hurt or to the normal, maybe typical family tensions that come when we mix believers and unbelievers, um, or people living just in strife and proximity to one another. I'm talking about real, difficult, life-and-death situations, people facing persecution because of what they believe. There are Christians around the world that are suffering and dying today for their faith. And this is not unique to today. This is not unique to our time. It goes back thousands of years, but... Um, in the United States, it can seem a bit foreign to us. We don't face that here. Uh, if you do a quick survey of headlines, though, around the world, it reveals much. So first, in Nepal, um, quoting from this uh, article, it says, The enactment of new legislation criminalizing religious conversion in Nepal has sparked a heightened sense of fear and insecurity among Christian minorities. Uh, the Civil Criminal Codes, which came into effect in August, comprised a set of laws guiding civil and legal proceedings, including restrictions on religious conversion in the Hindu-majority nation. Uh, one new law states that anyone who encourages or is involved in religious conversion using any means will be booked under a criminal offense and will face a jail term of five years. Uh, jump over to Nigeria. We see... Um, one father of a Nigerian schoolgirl um, is, is speaking. Her, his daughter is being held by an Islamic militant group since February, and he has just heard her voice. He said, it is really nice to hear her voice. Before, I thought she wasn't even alive. Um, his daughter was kidnapped along with more than 100 girls from uh, Dapchi. The others were later freed, but she was kept reportedly because she refused to convert from Christianity to Islam. Finally, uh, this kind of bone-chilling one from India says, Christian villagers in a rural district of India's Maharashtra state have been told that one church will be closed down every week because they have been, quote, destroying local tradition and culture by luring others to convert to Christianity. Since June, over a dozen houses belonging to Christians have been attacked by local extremist groups across five villages. This is, this is today. This is current, everyday happenings that we see around the world. There is example after example, and if we're not careful um, and watchful, we can be lulled into thinking this sort of thing is isolated and rare, because we don't see this every day here. We don't see this sort of thing in our country. Um, even as we uh, may face some um, difficulties here, we press to maintain our religious freedoms here, we must thank God for the gracious freedoms that he has given to us. We, we can meet together in this building this morning without worry 
or opposition. We have access here to God's word, and we do not fear for our lives for proclaiming God's word. There is much to be thankful for here. However, we need to recognize that in our blessed state here, there is a great danger. We are at high risk. Like our physical lives might not be hanging in the balance for simply attending a Sunday gathering, but in many ways, we can be at a, at a much greater risk. The, the Christians in the situations I described above have been given in some ways a gift that you and I do not have. Their reliance and devotion to God is heightened because they must cry out. They must pour out their soul. They, they have nowhere else to turn. They are going through real difficult opposition, and um, there is no alternative but for them to turn to the one who controls all things. As we, as we sit here in our comfortable chairs and our somewhat effective air conditioning, we can be comforted, right? We can be comfortable, and we are not dependent and reliant in a way where if we had to secretly meet and worry that the government is going to come stomping in and drag us away, uh, or Islam, uh, any extremist group will, will come attack us for what we believe, um, we can be lulled into not being wholly devoted and committed to the Lord. That reliance and dependence is what we see from David here in Psalm 25 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Psalm 25. Reading from the psalm, here it says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me, be not, let, let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord, remember me. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. His eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of distress. Consider my affliction and my trouble, and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes, and with what violent hatred they hate me. O oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O oh God, out of all his troubles. May God bless the reading of his holy, inerrant, and sufficient word. In this psalm, David 
speaks to us in a way that is very relatable to us. He is facing severe difficulties from his enemies, but trusts the Lord and praises his holy name throughout it all. He does not stray from God, but he invests in even deeper ways as he records this beautiful poem for us in scripture. As we work through this passage this morning, um, we encounter first David's petition to the Lord. We encounter David's petition to the Lord in verses 1 through 7. David begins his petition by earnestly seeking him in prayer. He says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. He is crying out to the Lord in prayer. The, the typical Hebrew posture when praying to the Lord is to lift hands and eyes up to the Lord. And, and David is playing off of that, uh, saying that he is lifting up his entire soul to the Lord. Every part of him is sincerely crying out to God. He is fully committed and, and earnest in his prayer, and he's lifting these concerns up before the Lord. Indeed, his, his voice here, and, and ours as well, is useless in prayer unless we are lifting up our soul to the Lord, unless, unless we are earnestly seeking him in prayer. God is not just desiring that part of us flippantly prays to him before we scarf down our meal, but we are actually uh, called here, and David models this as, as complete devotion, as, as lifting his entire soul up to the Lord. This is what God desires, complete faith and trust. And, and David understands this, um, and, and he shows it by expressing that in this passage. Uh, he, is, he is showing complete trust and dependence on the Lord, even in his trouble. Uh, David is praying to the Lord here when he's under a time of attack. Some commentators believe that this is during the latter part of Saul's reign as king, as he is, is seeking David's life. Uh, others place this psalm uh, during the revolt led by his son Absalom. Um, the exact timing of this doesn't matter so much. Um, whatever his enemies are, whatever they are doing, it caused David great distress here. And he is asking God to not let him be put to shame. In, in Israel's honor and shame society, this was not a light request from David. This was a heavy request from David. He's pleading with the Lord, um, even as he is facing this shame coming from his enemies. They are, they are confronting him. They are plotting against him. And in verse 3, we see that they are conspiring against him unprovoked. Uh, David's uh, enemies' sins are heightened by the fact that they, he had done them no wrong. It says here that they are wantonly treacherous. All right, so sometimes scripture gives you uh, a particularly awesome phrase that you can, you can use in everyday life. Um, Genesis 16.12, for example, calls Ishmael, uh, God calls him a wild donkey of a man. Um, I use that all the time now. It's a great phrase. He was being a wild donkey of a man, often when I'm texting Pastor Doug. Um, same here with wantonly treacherous. That is, that is a great phrase. What does that mean? Um, Wantonly treacherous is transgressing without a cause. They are, they are violating an oath. They are false. They are deceiving. They are liars. They are, they are deceitful in their treachery. Even if we are not facing this sort of persecution, 
we can relate to this feeling, right? Even if we're not facing this persecution as Christians, we can relate to this kind of feeling when you are wrong, when you have not provoked someone, but they have lashed out against you, right? When you find your coworker throwing you under a bus or um, someone you thought were, was your friend gossiping behind your back, um, someone is orchestrating a wrong and it's directly aimed at you. You want justice, right? You want recompense for what they are doing. You want them to be exposed and the situation to be set right. This is what David is expressing here. He is being mistreated by his foes and they are wantonly treacherous. These wild donkeys of men are wantonly treacherous against him and he is pleading with the Lord to not let them put him to shame. This is understandable, right? We get this. He has enemies and it drives him to cry out to the Lord. And that makes sense. Like that, that's what our response should be when we, when we, when we receive this sort of persecution. Um, he's focusing here at the beginning on the immediate physical circumstances, and then he transitions into something that's more urgent, like more important, his most important need. He, posi- he petitions the Lord to satisfy his spiritual hunger, to satisfy his spiritual thirst. Starting in verse 4, David asks God to teach him his ways and his paths. So he transitions from this this physical need to a spiritual need. God's ways here could be understood just like the simple ordering of his providence, like teach him what decision to make. Um, Or it could be understood as the paths of obedience pointed out explicitly in God's word. I think from this context, he's likely speaking to God's truths, the way in which he desires his children to walk in obedience to him. David wants to know what type of life is pleasing to the Lord and to walk in that way. Does this seem a bit odd to you? First, he is bringing up difficulty he is having with those who are sinning against him, and then he transitions into asking God to guide and direct him, to point him toward a life of obedience, to point him toward holiness. He goes, he goes on in verse 6 and 7 to seek mercy and, and remind God of his steadfast love. He, he is asking God to save and deliver him from his enemies. And then he asks God to teach him his ways. So, so in this, we, re, we must recognize that if God does everything for us, God does everything for us that we are asking. If he delivers us from our temporal difficulty, if he silences our critics, he gives us comfort and he gives us ease, but he does not teach us his will and his ways, then he cannot be the God of our salvation. David well understands this, and he is not merely looking to be delivered from these temporal circumstances. He is taking a much longer view. He is asking God to fully vindicate him. He is asking for the whole thing, the complete package. He does this by calling on God to be merciful according to God's steadfast love. He's calling upon the promises and the character of God. Calling upon the character of God is a far more convincing argument than anything we could ever appeal to in our fallen, weakened, flawed character. He does not tout himself, but he speaks of the covenant-keeping characteristics of God, appealing to God's mercy, appealing to the steadfast love of the Lord. David is seeking to be at one with the Lord because he recognizes that in his sin, he is in desperate need of this posture of God 
towards him. Finally, in this first section of seven verses, David confesses the sins of his youth. And he asks the Lord then to forgive him, to remember not his sin. This also might seem a little bit odd, putting this here. He's, he's facing present difficulties from, from enemies. He's recognizing his own sinfulness. And then he asks to be forgiven of these sins that have, have been committed long ago. Uh, but here he's even recognizing his past guilt. Matthew Henry puts it well. He says, Our youthful faults and follies should be a matter of our repentance and humiliation long after, because time does not wear out the guilt of sin. Old people should mourn for the sinful mirth and be in pain for the sinful pleasures of their youth. Just because it happened a long time ago doesn't mean it was any less offensive to God. And David recognizes this and he is going to the Lord. Martin Luther puts it maybe a little more crassly in uh, Luther's style. He says, If anyone will allow a youth to grow up and to do as he likes, he will become quite a devil before one is aware of what he is doing. And all parents say, Amen. Right? Like, we, we recognize this. If we let... If we let a child go and do what he wants, he will go and do terrible things. He will uh, not need someone to teach him how to sin. He will be able to do that easily on his or her own. Surely this speaks to all of us here. There are many things, right, I can look back on in disgust and regret and see mistakes that I have made and stupid things that I have done in my past and... um, I call upon the Lord to forgive them. I can lay those at the foot of the cross. I can repent of those things. I I can't go back in our time machine and change what I did, but but I can find mercy and forgiveness in the Lord. Certainly, this speaks to us all. Even so, it might seem abnormal that at this time, in this prayer, that David is bringing out this aspect, these sins of his youth. Um, but we recognize here that present troubles and difficulties, difficult circumstances, often have the power to remind us of our sin and draw us to our knees in repentance. So even as others are unjustly persecuting him, even as he's facing pressures from the outside and people are wantonly treacherous against him, he reaches out to the Lord and he is struck by his own unworthiness, even as he does this before a holy God. Ultimately, then, anything that does this is good for us. He is facing evil from the outside, and it drives him to his knees before the Lord in repentance. If we are drawn to our knees in repentance before God, no matter the circumstance, that is a good thing. We thank God for that, even as that is difficult. We are being conformed to the image of, the, of his son. Like, that is the good that he has for us when he says all things work together for good. If that is driving you to your knees in repentance, that is a good thing. David here experiences this, and this is a good thing for him. In this first section, David is petitioning the Lord, first from deliverance from his enemies and also deliverance from his own sin. He, he is guilty before a holy God, and he knows this. He is humble, he is contrite, and he knows that God is faithful and God is merciful. 
He bows before the throne of grace so that he might be forgiven. Friends, this should be then our posture as well. So even as we gather here as God's people, we should be approaching God humbly and meekly. Even as we petition God and pray to God for real physical needs, real problems that we are facing, difficulties that we are encountering, even in that, we should be reminded of our own sin, our own shortcomings, and our own failure, our own imperfections uh, before a perfect and holy God. Now, like the tax collector in Luke 18, we should be repenting, asking God for mercy and grace because we do not exhibit the holiness that he requires. Even as David's enemies were evil, David does not exhibit the holiness that God requires. God requires perfection. Friends, you have not done that. I have not done that. We go to God on our knees in repentance and faith because he did that for you. If this thought does not ever, not, not ever enter your head as you are asking for things from God, then you are doing it wrong. Look to the psalmist here for help. This is, this is our approach. Humble, on our knees. Yes, we bring real needs before the Lord. We ask him to help us, but we do this humbly and we do this in light of our own sin and we do this seeking his mercy and grace. He is the covenant-keeping God. He is faithful. He is steadfast in love. He is merciful. And we, we approach him knowing he is faithful to forgive us of our sin. The psalm starts with David's petition to the Lord and then secondly we read uh, David's praise of the Lord. We read of David's praise of the Lord. He transitions from a petition to the Lord into a time of adoration. If, if you listen to the change in language, if you go through and circle the, the personal pronouns there, the I, the me, the my, you'll find, find a lot of them at the beginning, you'll find a lot of them at the end. But in the middle section, these um, verses here, he's, he's changing his language to ascribe glory to the Lord. Starting in verse 8, it says, Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him, he will instruct in the way he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. He starts by describing the goodness and the uprightness of the Lord. Uh, certainly, God is good and upright, and this is something then that we cling to in times of distress. God instructs sinners. Right? Thank God that he instructs sinners. That is, that is all of us. In this room, that is where we are at. We are sinners. And we are in need of his instruction. We are in need of his enlightenment. We are in need of his spirit working in and through us. We do not make ourselves more worthy to receive him, but it is him who works in us, instructing us and drawing us to him. Now, certainly, John Calvin was right when he said, to attribute to God an uprightness which he may exercise only to the worthy and the meritous is a cold view of his character and of little advantage to sinners. God is not good and upright to you because you are good. God is good and upright, and he instructs sinners. He condescends 
to us. Our good God condescends to us. He instructs us. He brings us from life to death. He indwells us. Uh, there, there is no other hope for us. God instructs the sinners. He leads the humble and the meek, those who are quite aware of their sin, who are humbled by calamities or present difficulties. This is the proper temperament as we approach and praise this holy God. We do not approach him in arrogance or pride or flippancy. We approach him humbly and fearfully. God is good and upright, and he's helping sinners, those who have rebelled against him. He does this because of his steadfast love and because of his faithfulness. He does this because of his character. This is the glorious God that we worship. He has covenanted with his people. He has, he has made promises to his people, and he is faithful to those promises. God can, and can be trusted. Starting in verse 11, David appeals to God to pardon his guilt, quote, for the sake of his name. Right? For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. For your name's sake. This is not something new. Your name's sake. This is something that, that these uh, readers would have been quite familiar with. So we're going to take a, a detour here for a minute, but uh, I think it's going to be helpful. Um, if you have your Bible, turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 12. 1 Samuel chapter 12. Samuel heard from the people that they wanted a king, and like all the other nations, he, he gave them what they were clamoring for. He gave them a king. He installed Saul as king, and then he addressed the nation. All right, so starting in verse 1. Behold, I have obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you. And I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. And they said, You have not defrauded us, or oppressed us, or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is a witness against you, and his anointed is a witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron, and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God and he sold them into the hand of Sisera commander of the army Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Asheroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubal and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel to deliver you out of the hand of your enemies on every side. And you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you. You said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. And now, behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. 
If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord, it will be well with you. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Ultimately, when God pardons sin, when God calls out a people for himself, God does that for his name's sake, for his glory. We talked about this morning, why did God choose Israel? It wasn't because they were better. It wasn't because Abraham was especially nice guy. Right? It wasn't because he knew they were going to do well. It was because it was for his name's sake, for his own glory. He does not do this so that people can be lifted up, so he can show the world how great of a person you are. God calls filthy sinners unto himself, and he makes a people for himself because it makes him look glorious. It is to exalt his name. It is to show his steadfast love, to show his mercy, to show his grace, to show his compassion. He was made to look great and glorified when he called Israel unto himself. It was for his name's sake, as Samuel says here. He was made to look great when he pardoned David's sin, and it was for his name's sake. It's no different today. When God calls sinners today, he grants repentance and faith in Christ. He plucks them out of the net. He plucks them like a brand out of the fire. He washes away their sin. He gives them newness of life. And his name is lifted high. God is glorified. He is made to look great to us. It is his glory on display. It is for his name's sake. David rightly praises God through this whole section and correctly identifies that God has done this for his own glory, for his name's sake. This is one of the reasons why we've started sharing testimonies. If, you, if you've been coming to our Wednesday evening uh, prayer meetings, we have concluded these with a testimony. We're going to continue to do that. Uh, this is not because we want to make ourselves look good. Uh, earlier this week, I had a conversation with a friend of mine, and he said that when he was putting together his testimony, he went online to look for examples, which I thought was pretty awesome. Uh, he wanted to see what people normally do when they give their testimony and get a feel for how it was done. 
And on his own, he made this very astute observation. He said that many, uh, maybe most, of the testimonies were very man-centered. It was a lot about how either bad they were or how good they are now. It lifted up the person. It talked a lot about the person. It talked very little about the Savior, the one who, who caused the change. Uh, this can be our tendency, and, and, it, and it should not be. We, we have been saved. We have been changed. And, and it is for God's glory. In this, we glorify him. It is for his name's sake. God is praised. God is lifted up. When we share with others what God has done to us, um, man, I, I pray that it is soaked with the word, with the gospel. Like God has done that for us. And it is a, a great work of the Lord, of what he has done. In the middle of this portion of scripture, David makes this clear. It is for God's name's sake. David begins the psalm with a petition to the Lord, asking God to help him in his desperate time of need, both from persecution from his enemies and from his own sinfulness. He then moves into a time of praise of the Lord, worshiping God for his righteous character and his merciful deeds. And then finally, we read about David's hope in the Lord. David's hope in the Lord, verses 16 through 22. Starting in 16, it says, Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Consider my affliction and my trouble, and forgive all my sin. Consider how many are my foes, and with what violent hatred they hate me. O oh, guard my soul, and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Man, David comes to the end of this psalm. He changes his language once again, and the focus is on the current afflictions that he is going to and, and his need for God's grace here. He, he rightly recognizes in verse 16 that God's grace is his only foundation, his only grounding for the hope that he has. He is unworthy of God's affection, but he can go before the king of kings because God has looked upon him in mercy and grace. He has, he has made promises to him. He can trust the creator God that he will deliver him ultimately from distress. He will hear his problems. He will consider his problems. He will forgive him of his sin because he is gracious to him. David approaches the Lord from a humble place. His, his low and contrite heart does not have a hint of pride here, but he is low and he is humble before the Lord in describing his circumstances. Might even appear here that he is complaining, right? And, and, and certainly there, there, there is this hint of that. It's, it's um, a pretty definitive distinction here, though. He is complaining to God. He is not complaining about God. He's crying out in desperation due to his conditions. But he is not complaining that he is being treated unfairly or unjust by the Lord. Rather, he is speaking to the one that he knows he can rely upon, that he can trust, that he can go to, who is the solid rock on which he can stand in his time of need. He is facing down his enemies, and he is being severely mistreated, and he seeks safety in the God of his salvation. He began this psalm by lifting up his soul to the Lord in prayer, and he continues this posture throughout. Uh, however dark the situation is, however, however hopeless, this is a good lesson for us all, 
This is where we find our hope. We should continue to seek God in prayer. The more lowly and the more desperate our condition, the more difficult the circumstances or the perceived hopelessness that we have um, in our present situation, that is all the more reason to seek him and to find our hope squarely on him. God is made to be all the more glorious as we find our refuge and our strength in him in our time of need. Jesus truly is the solid rock upon which we stand. We will sing that later, and it's, it is a good reminder for us as we go through these difficulties, we find refuge, and our hope is found squarely upon the atoning work of Jesus Christ. We, like David, were sinners. We were unworthy of him. We were under God's judgment and wrath. We, uh, left unto ourselves, would get our just rewards. It would be uh, an eternity of punishment. But God, being merciful and having a steadfast love which we cannot comprehend, sent us Jesus to die, to live a, a perfect life for us first and then die on the cross, taking our punishment and then rising again to live and rule and reign forever. As we trust in him, like David, trusting upon God's promises, we find uh, our hope squarely upon Jesus. Finally, in verse 22, we see David extend this prayer to all of Israel. Um, whether he was the king at this point, which is, which is likely, um, it, certainly um, he was a figurehead of Israel, um, and he is extending this prayer for all of God's people. He extends this prayer beyond his own immediate needs, but, but he extends to the, the needs of the nation, and, and certainly church, this can speak to us today, right? We, we, um, we need this same sort of prayer for God's people today, just as Israel needed it in the Old Covenant. David recorded this psalm under specific conditions. There were, uh, it was a particular time and place. There were real enemies. There was a real situation. There were outcomes that hung in the balance. He was pleading with the Lord to help him against these enemies. He was confessing sin, actual sin that he committed before the Lord, personal sin. This is a real historical figure that had real historical uh, needs in this specific situation, but it has application to us. Um, this is timeless in many ways. So I want to close today by highlighting five points of application from this for us this morning. First of all, it is clear that God's people have always relied upon God's mercy and grace for their salvation. We rely upon God's mercy and grace for our salvation. This was true in the Old Covenant. It's true in the New Covenant. The people of God were not saved because they were ethnically the people of God. They were not automatically considered God's people because they were born to Israelite parents. A cursory reading of the Gospels will point this out. Jesus uh, consistently condemns the Pharisees because of their lack of faith. Uh, furthermore, all of Hebrews 11 commends the saints of old, not because they were descendants of Abraham, but because they trusted in the promises of God because they had faith. It was by God's grace alone, through faith alone, that they were saved. And uh, David, it is no di for David, and it is no different for us here, he continues um, in this psalm, to hearken back to God's mercy and grace and his steadfast love and his covenant promises as he is trusting in God for his salvation. Jesus is the solid rock upon which we stand. We must do the same. Like David, we wholly and truly lift up our soul to the Lord. We humbly come before him in prayer, asking him to teach us his ways 
and to show us his righteousness. We pray for his mercy and for his grace. We appeal to his steadfast love and we trust in his covenant promises that have been fully completed and fulfilled for you and Jesus. In him, we place our trust alone. We turn from our sin and we turn in repentance and faith in Christ that his atoning death has paid the penalty for our sin. We trust in the promises of God and like David, we take refuge in this good God. Secondly, the greater our trouble we find ourselves in, the greater our trust should be. The greater our trouble, the greater our trust. David found himself in the middle of some pretty terrible circumstances. Um, Saul wanted to take his life. Absalom wanted to displace him as kingdom and take his life. Through all of this, we do not see David turning away. right? We do not see him despairing. We do not see him cursing the Lord. But rather, we see him double down in his dependence and his reliance upon the Lord. And we would do well to pay attention to this. As you go through difficulty, do not shrink back from God. I know that can be the tendency. As you go through difficulty, you don't want to see people, right? You want to shrink back. As you go through difficulty, follow the psalmist here. Do not pull away from God. Do not pull away in prayer. Do not stop going to his word. Do not avoid the faith family that he has given you here at Crossway. Double down on this. Dive into his word. Seek him earnestly in prayer. Cry out to him. Lift up your soul to him. Rely upon the people, upon the Christians that you have here, whose job and obligation it is to love you and bear with you through those difficult circumstances. The Lord cares for you. He has designed the Christian life to be dependent upon him. He has given you his word. He has given you the opportunity to approach him in prayer. He has given you the church. We, we don't neglect this but we go even deeper into this. Let him guide you through these difficult circumstances. Third, our most pressing need, my most pressing need, your most pressing need is not merely physical, but it is the spiritual condition of your soul. Your most pressing need is the spiritual condition of your soul. David could have lamented only about his physical circumstances, about his enemies, um, and from the sounds of it, he was being massively mistreated. He had a legitimate beef. But as he approached the Lord, it became clear that that was not all that he needed. That is not all that you need either. You don't need God just to fix your problems. You don't need God to change your circumstances only. You don't need just his physical help. Now, I'm not saying that's unimportant. I'm not saying we don't ask for those things. But like David, we recognize that is not the priority. We need God's mercy and we need his grace. We need his love and forgiveness and his comfort. Prioritize this in your prayers. Seek him earnestly and seek him often. The spiritual condition of your soul matters. Fourth, do not be surprised when the world opposes you. All right, David is writing from this place. He has many enemies. Likewise, we see in the life of Jesus, he has many enemies. He has a lot of opposition. Jesus himself said that we should expect this. In John 15, he says, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. 
But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. We should, we should not be surprised when the world opposes us, when the world pushes back, when we face opposition. That is, that is part of the gig. That is part of being a Christian. We look to David and we look to Jesus, and we see not just the opposition, but we also see the proper response. They are wholly dependent upon the Lord. David seeks the Lord. Jesus is communing with the Father. We are wholly dependent upon the Lord in these circumstances. Do not be surprised, but go to the Lord for your refuge. Finally, fifth. This one's huge. Consider the privilege it is to come before the Lord. Consider how blessed you are to be able to pour out your soul before him in times of need. To know that he hears you, that he cares for you. The creator God, the almighty, the one who is upholding the world moment by moment has invited you to pray to him because he cares for you. David understood this here and in this we have a model how to pray when we are in our desperate time of need. Pray to him and remember that this too is a special blessing. David faced severe difficulty from his enemies but he trusted the Lord and he praised his holy name throughout. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, like the psalmist, we lift up our soul to you. We know that you are the only one we can go to to find refuge, that you are the God who has promised many things to us. Father, if we are your people, Father, I pray that we find in you our hope that we seek you in our times of trouble and that we remember our most urgent need is our, our spiritual standing before you. So I, I thank you for giving us Jesus. I thank you for reminding us that it is only upon your mercy and your steadfast love that we can rely. Help us now as we go into the week. Help us to remember these things, to um, remember that we were once unbelievers, but you have been gracious and merciful to us, Lord. Help us to uh, live in a way that is uh, both glorifying to you and also um, calling, this, calling out this message to those around us. We thank you for this time this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.